hello to our listeners today and um, I'm going to be joined by four people. Um, I've got three ladies, uh, Barbara, Angela and Karen, and I've got a gentleman called Mark and we're going to be hearing about some amazing events and concerning events inside the NHS uh, to do with uh, relatives who've uh, essentially suffered and in the current climate where of course we've got a lot of publicity um, for the good works of the NHS in relation to Covid and maybe that's another story um, but the facts are that there are many people who've had very bad experiences within the NHS and uh, when they've tried to get justice for what's happened for some reason all the doors seem to close so today we thought we'd bring together several people um, who are telling stories that have some remarkable similarities and this really shows us that uh, uh, this is not one incident where something went wrong but there's really a pattern and it's the pattern, what that pattern is and the significance of the pattern uh, which is the really key thing. So I'm going to say first of all um, Mark and ladies, welcome. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. I know it takes a lot of courage to speak out. And perhaps we'll start with you, Barbara, because you were able to speak to me a few months ago. But yes. um, tell us a little bit about yourself, just to set the scene. And yes. just well, not, My name is Barbara Williams. I live in Cheshire. I'm 65 years old. Um, my husband, John, died in the Countess of Chester Hospital on the 7th of January 2014. His was uh, a complex and detailed medical history, and in the year immediately preceding John's death, he received no treatment at all for his heart failure from the local uh, GPs. They didn't treat it at all, although he got progressively worse throughout 2013. Um, on the evening of the 7th of January, he was admitted to hospital um, by ambulance. He'd had a respiratory failure at home when the ambulance man came out, the paramedic, Dave. And um, he got him revived and we got him into hospital. We went into the relatives' room and it was curious that um, we waited for quite some considerable time. But we later found that none of the staff wore name badges and none of them actually spoke to us. The, we were in the, med in the relatives' uh, room, my son-in-law, my granddaughter and me, and the paramedic put his head round the door and said, he's OK, he's got independent respiratory, cardiac output, and he's being assessed for intensive care. So we immediately breathed a huge sigh of relief, and immediately David left. The consultant, Dr David Wilson, came in and said, he, he was accompanied by two other women, and again, Dr Wilson wore a name badge, but the other two women didn't. And... Um, he said that we're going to leave him to slip away naturally. And I said, we've just been told by the paramedics that he has been assessed for intensive care. And the two women and Dr. Wilson exchanged a significant look. And then Dr. Wilson reiterated, no, we're going to leave him to slip away naturally. And I said, no, you're not doing that. I want you to do the very best you can for him, please. And that was the point at which my son-in-law, granddaughter, and I left the relatives' room, went across the passageway into the resource room. My son-in-law walked in front of me, and I heard my husband say, all right, son. And that was always his greeting for our son-in-law, Peter. So he wasn't connected to any machinery. As the paramedic had said, he had independent respiratory. He had no oxygen mask on. There, was, there were no paddles on his chest to indicate any heart tracing or anything like that. 
we found him lucid and cogent, and I was teasing him about the turkey leftovers. Um, a nurse in a striped dress came up behind him and put a tube into his nostril, ostensibly to drain some fluid from his chest. He wasn't coughing or anything, but I said hello to her, and she ignored me. Now, we now know, we didn't realise at the time, that um, she should have asked John, was it OK to perform that particular procedure, but she didn't. Um, a few moments later, uh, we were talking to John again, and he said to me, we've had a lousy Christmas, we'll have a better one next year. And during the course of him saying that to me, one of the women who had earlier come into the relative's room with the consultant and her colleague came into the resource room and completely ignored us. We might as well have not been there. She walked down the bed, picked up John's arm, gave him an injection and walked out again. And 30 seconds later, he was dead. Uh, we stayed with him for a few minutes. Uh, please bear in mind that with the benefit of hindsight, which makes visionaries of us all, as we know, um, we didn't realise at the time that she should have asked John was it OK to give him the injection, whereupon I hopefully would have had the presence of mind to say to this lady, um, what is that injection for and why are you giving him this? But none of that happened. Um, we stayed with him for a few minutes, and as we were leaving, there was a young girl in the pink, uh, pink scrubs working near the door. And as we were leaving, because we had to tell our relatives and friends that John had gone, um, she looked at me over her shoulder and said, can we have his skin? And my granddaughter and I were absolutely dumbfounded, and I said to this lady, I beg your pardon, and she said, she turned and faced me and said, do you think we can have his skin? And I said, no, you can't. Just leave him alone, please. And as we were passing over the threshold to go to the relatives' room for a little privacy so that we could get on our phones and tell everyone the bad news, Another nurse in a striped dress, whom we'd not seen before, called to us up the corridor and said, you can't go anywhere, there's a police officer coming to identify your husband's body. Now, once again, if I'd been in full possession of what I'm pleased to call my wit, I'd have said to this lady, how do you know he's died? Um, I, I didn't. The police officer came, we did the ID of my husband's body, and then we hung around for a bit. Nobody came near us, so we just came home. And that's the story of what happened on the night my husband died. Uh, Barbara, it's, um, there's, there's aspects... Thank you very much for, for telling us that. Um, there are aspects of this story which are, well, are just incredible. Um, I have the advantage that you've talked me through some of that before, um, but hearing it for the second time um, really, really brings things home much, much more. So... The key bit in this is that things were done to your husband that there was no approval for. Um, Absolutely not. C can I just interject there, Brian, for a yeah. second, please? We are practising Christians, and I'm enormously grateful for the NHS because the fact that John lived till he was 77 is a tribute to the excellent care he'd had. Um, and I can never be sufficiently grateful for that. But we had, as a family, open. We we're all pragmatists, and we have to face these things. And we'd always spoken openly about John's end of life, and he's always said that wherever possible, he would like to die at home. So with that in mind, uh, my son-in-law and granddaughter were prepared to turn the little front room into a sort of a bed set, so we could put a bed in there. The junk could off down in a single bed, and his pals can come in and have a whiskey with him now and again. So it's not as if we're one of these people who just can't accept that he's died because I've been living with the reality of John's death for a very long time because his health needs were so complex. So it's not as if I'm just some hysteric, you know, who can't accept that a husband has died. I can accept that extremely clearly. 
but we were supported by our local church, by the outreach workers, the pastoral care. And as I say, we had openly discussed John's end of life. Um, so it's not as if, you know, I just couldn't accept that he'd, he'd died. It was the circumstances that weren't, that didn't become clear until much, much later. That it's actually an assault to perform any sort of procedure on a patient without their consent. Yes. And just, just to fast forward it a little bit further, um, when I went to the GMC, the, GM, the General Medical Council, uh, the Assistant uh, Commissioner of the GMC, obtained what he claimed was an expert opinion. And it transpired that they are claiming that John was number three on the Glasgow Coma Scale, which means he was deeply unconscious, and um, that he had an endotracheal tube in his throat, which is not true. If he had an endotracheal tube in his throat, it would not have been possible for him to speak to us. And more importantly, if he was deeply unconscious, why did they take the view he required sedation and pain relief? Yes. It's, it's balmy, Brian. It is. There's no other word for it. Yeah. So if, if I summarise this a little bit for people listening, the, the key bit is that you were able to speak to your husband and he responded you said that he was he was cogent so oh, uh, yes, absolutely. He, he was there he was communicating with you and then two procedures are carried out including an, one of which includes an injection and 30 did you say 30 minutes later he was dead 30 seconds it was that quick john uh, brian i beg your pardon but we didn't know that this woman had a syringe in her hand right and did did they did she or did the other nurse ever ever say what what that that injection was actually for? Nobody did because I would have questioned it because there are yeah. multiple warnings of morphine intolerance throughout his notes. There are eight in total. Right, and so you believe that it could have been morphine. I'm quite sure it was in the light of recent revelations about end of life care and so on, which was never discussed. Because, as I say, we weren't completely opposed to the idea. I think, in principle, when the case is hopeless, then I think it's a good thing if it's, if it's managed properly and, you know, within the bounds of the law. Um, but the gentleman never had a terminal diagnosis, Brian. Yes. And did, did you get any further explanation as to why they wanted his skin? I, I no, can imagine. I don't know, but, but I know that there are questions, very fierce questions have been raised about forcible organ donation. But the paradoxical thing is, Brian, that had John been asked, he would have happily said, look, when I kick the bucket, whatever bits are left over, help yourself. Our daughter died in tragic circumstances at the age of 35, nine years ago, and we were happy to donate my daughter's corneas because two of the people who came into hospital who were blind left that hospital about a week later, and they had sight. So we weren't opposed in principle to the idea of organ donation, but the way she just said it so casually, you yes. know, um, the way she just looked, looked at me over her shoulder. Yeah. I mean, she didn't show, there was no, none of the usual conventional expressions about condolences or anything like that. Just a cold-blooded, um, just looking over her shoulder saying, can we have his skin? Yes. They didn't been dead a few minutes. It, it, there's something morally repugnant about the entire thing. And, and Barbara, with, I'm going to say, without getting into detail at the moment, because um, what I'd like to do is, is get um, Angela to talk us through what, what her story is, but just in, in a very few words, what happened, 
after his death, you tried to get some answers. And did, what, yeah. what did you experience? What we experienced was an even more uh, disturbing component of the entire matter, really. Um, I instructed solicitors. I had a bit of trouble with them trying to get hold of John's medical records, but we instructed solicitors. And the solicitor sent out a lady called Gail Proctor. And Gail came to the house and she took the entire story and I said how quickly he had died after having been given this injection. And we, he didn't speak to us, so we don't know what, what was in the injection. Um, you see, the, the curious thing about this, Brian, if I can just remind myself, had John, the first thing I said to John when we went into the resource room, I said, have you got any pain anywhere? And he said, no. If he had had pain, I would have gone to look for somebody and said, can you please give him some sort of pain relief? Making sure that it wasn't morphine, hence the eight separate warnings. But that didn't happen. So the, 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 the solicitor that came out, Gail, took down all the details and she said, well, we'll be able to find out what all the drugs he was given on the night he died. She said, we'll find out who prescribed them and what the drugs were and who administered them. But there was no drugs chart in the file, Brian. And neither this particular firm of solicitors or two or three others, well, two, really, two other firms of solicitors, they didn't pursue that either. It, it must have been conspicuous by its absence because it's one of the most important documents of all to see what was the patient actually given immediately preceding their death. Yes. And so you you couldn't... Did you, did you eventually get that document or you've never got no. it? No, no. You've never got it, and and the, the legal firms have been unable to obtain it as well. I don't think they've even tried. Yeah. Okay, uh, Barbara, thank you very much for that. Angela, thank you, have we st we still got you on the line. Yes, I'm still here. Okay, would would you like to really do the same thing? Just give us a little introduction about yourself, and then tell us what what happened to your mum. Uh, right, my name's Angela Johnson, and uh, my mum died at Warrington Hospital, and she also went to Holland's Park Hospital in Warrington. Um, first of all, she was admitted to Wigan Hospital uh, because she fell outside of her own. And um, when she went in Wigan Hospital, she'd been for about a week. They just said they were keeping her in to, to have her assessed. And she was talking properly to me, and everything was fine. And then uh, all of a sudden they said, uh, we want to have you in this room, you know, for a chat. And there was quite a few people, there about six or seven people, and I thought, well, all these people were there. And they said, uh, right, your mum has to go now straight to a curl. And I said, well, my mum's talking okay and everything's fine, she said. I said, she's feeling better now, a new infection's being treated. They said, no, she's been assessed, she's got dementia. I said, dementia? I said, I've just been having a, a conversation. I said, well, why don't we bring her in and she can tell you, no, 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 we don't need to talk to your mum, we just need to talk to you. Uh, your mum's uh, assessed, you've got dementia. I said, are you sure? I said, are you sure about that? They said, oh, yes, perfectly sure. She needs to go straight to a curl. I said, you can't send her to a curl. She's fine. She, she's, she's a very independent woman. She goes shopping every day. And she sees to, she sees to her own money. She pays her own bills, you know. She's quite an intelligent lady. They said, no, she has to go straight to a curl. So anyway, I was arguing with these people, about six or seven people, for 20 minutes, I felt ill. I just felt they were all ganging up on me and shouting me down. We know better. We're the professionals. Anyway, eventually they gave in. 
He said, right, your mum can go home. So my mum went home. But I don't know whether they put her on the wrong medication or not. She had, she was having, I was going around quite a few days to see to her. And then I got a bit of um, meals on wheels. That was started being delivered to her. And she kept changing different things. But again, she started, um, she started, she started acting a bit confused again. And I thought, it looks like she could have another urine infection. So she went back into hospital, into Wigan Hospital again. And they said, oh, she's been in not long ago. And I went, yeah, that's right. You know, she's 83 years old, obviously. And, I, and she started talking, and I couldn't understand the words she said, and I was really worried. I said, my mum sounds like she's lost her mind. Is she OK? I'm really worried about it. I thought she's got brain damage or something. And the nurses, they hardly smiled or anything. They just said, oh, um, yeah, she's uh, she probably just got an infection. Anyway, it did clear up. But then they had a meeting again, and they said, no, this time she needs to go straight to a care home. Um, she ended up in this care home for two years. At first, she was all right. And then when I started asking questions about the dementia, saying, my mum just seemed very lucid a lot of the time. And I'm, I come, I'm having a, a good conversations with her, but you sound this dementia, maybe I should investigate it a bit more. All of a sudden, when I brought that up, um, they said things started going downhill trying to cut it as short as I can. And then they said, oh, she need, after two years, they said she needs to go for a mental health assessment. I said, well, why should she need a mental health assessment when she's been in dementia over two years? They said, no, her condition's worsened. Uh, but she's got a urine infection, they said, but the doctor's been on the phone, the, the care home manager said. The doctor said there's nothing wrong with the physical health, it's just the mental health. And they'll change all the tablets when she's there so it will be better for us. So I was a bit worried about her going in hospital. But they said, no, everything will be fine. They'll change the tablets and they'll get her back to normal. And then she went to this Owens Park for this mental health assessment. And after about 19 days, they told me the day after that she'd been rushed at 2 o'clock in the morning to Warrington Medical Hospital to have um, to see because she, she was unresponsive. And I asked about this. But she, the, the morning after, she was brought back and they said she was fine. It was just uh, a false alarm, they said. It was nothing worried about, just a false alarm. And then on the 28th, um, things, I don't know, things started going a bit strange. They had, they had a, a, what they call a best interest meeting. And I said, what, what's that? They said, oh, it's called a best interest meeting, just going through things about what's better for your mum. It's really good, you know, we have this meeting. And I said, oh, well, fine then. And so we had this meeting. But the one, at the meeting, it was okay, but I, I noticed they were talking in code sometimes. They'd use abbreviations, which I didn't really know what they meant. And all these abbreviations were coming out. It was like a, it was like they were talking to one another in a secret language, but it, I thought it was all medical talk, so I didn't really take much attention. Anyway, the day after, my mum was unconscious. She actually looked like she'd been in a car crash. And she used to always be dressed up, very proud woman. They, they left her in a wheelchair with her legs wide open. I said, what on earth happened to my mum? They said, oh, right. I said, what's happened to her? I said, she looks, has she fallen banged her head up? floor? they said, no, no. And now all of a sudden, these nurses weren't talking to me anymore. And I was talking to them, and they just wouldn't answer me. They said, right, and they just wheeled her down to what they call the morning room, which was a private room. But it had a window in where the nurses could peek through the window, you know, and look at you and this... They called it a family room, I think, as well, and the quiet room. They had different words for it. And she was in there, unconscious, and I was really worried about her. 
And this is the seat Mont Chart and all of a sudden about three of them came in with all this paperwork. This is the day after the best interest meeting. They all started frantically filling all this paperwork in. I asked what it is, they said, it's nothing to do with you. And I said, well, what are you doing? They said, here. And they passed me this. It was called a, this is for me form. And I said, well, what's this for? They said, just write down what food your mum likes and what her likes and dislikes her because she can't speak. I said, yeah, but she was speaking a few days ago. She'll wake up. They said, she won't wake up anymore. I said, well, how do you know that? So I feel this, this is for me form and things are going from bad to worse. And I asked for a second opinion. They said, no, she's not entitled to a second opinion. You can't do anything for her now. And I was asking doctors and nurses, and I said, I was really worried about your mum. She looks like she's dying. This nurse walked off when I said that. I, I had a word with another doctor, and he said, well, I was with your mum when I went 83, and this doctor just busted out laughing. I said, what are you laughing for? He said, oh, she's, eight. she's eight, 80, 85, sorry, she was. She's 85, he said. They're all going to fail at that age. He said, you can't do anything for her. And he just walked off laughing. At her. And the thing is, I've no family. And this was going on for like two months now. And I said, my son's severely handicapped in a wheelchair. So there was just me and my son there. And because I was asking the nurses questions saying, why is my mum going downhill? The, the nurses were getting very aggressive with me. And then they started saying, where's your family? Where is everybody else? I said, I don't have a family. Where's your family? I kept asking her to send her to a medical hospital and they kept refusing. They said the doctor won't let her go and eventually they let her go when she was really bad. So by the time she got to Warrington Hospital, she was in a bad way, her mouth was open. That was on 12th of June. She was moved to about four different wards. Nobody seemed to be interested in her and I kept saying, you know, she can be safe. No, no. And one of the nurses said, we've never known anybody come from another hospital who was so badly dehydrated in such a bad state. So, obviously, I, I didn't know which way it turned because, like I said, I've got my son at wheelchair. I'd, I'd no help. I'm just basically having to drive now because it was quite a long way from where I live. So, anyway, she was in there. She took 12th of June, but 29th of June, that's when she died. And from then on, I'm sure they kept switching the drip off because they said she needed a drip on. Um, yeah, and I only found out after, through medical records, that she actually had this thing on called a shrinks travel, which I didn't know what it was. They never told me about that. When they were changing the bed once, I actually asked, what's the box under a pillow? What's that white box? And they said, with the buttons on. They said, oh, it is nothing. It's just something attached to the drip. And I said, all right. So I was arguing with, with the doctor as well, because the doctor had me in and said, there's nothing we can do for her now. We had to just leave her die. I said, what do you mean, leave her die? He said, we're taking the drip off your mum now and just leaving it die. I said, I'm really worried. She's had no food or water now for days. The drip looks like it keeps being switched off, but the nurse says it isn't. And my mum's mouth is dry as anything. It's wide, been wide open for days. And all her tongue's cracked. And I get upset talking about it. I'm sorry. And I've come in from... And they said, the doctor, I told the doctor, I said, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in euthanasia. I said, you can't do it, I'm not allowing you. And he said, we're taking the drip off now, whether you believe in it or not, we're doing it anyway. He said, we're taking the drip off and we're leaving it to die. And that was six years ago when she died yesterday. 
And I'm still in shock with what I see because he was barbaric. Yeah. He was absolutely barbaric, honestly. Okay, I wake up every day into a nightmare. And I blame myself because I find out afterwards when I did the research about this thing called the Liverpool Curve Pathway. And then when I looked into that, I thought, oh my God, I thought, they stopped my mum from eating and drinking on purpose to kill her. Because they told me a swallowing had gone. But it wasn't a swallowing had gone at all, obviously. They were dehydrating her to death. And I fell for it all because I trusted the NHS. I trusted doctors and nurses. And I thought they were I thought the best health service in the world. And I, I left everything in their hands. I thought, they're the experts. They know what's best, you know. And now I just wish I'd ne- I can't trust anyone. And now I've gone from being gullible and trusting to not trusting the word anybody says anymore. Yeah, and Angela... I've tried to condense it as best I can, but there's a lot more to it than that, obviously. No, and Angela, that, that was... Um... That was a very good summary, and I know it's very, very difficult to talk about these sorts of things. Um, when when I spoke to Barbara previously, I said that um, uh, in my own family, we, we had an issue where my mother-in-law died in hospital um, in very strange circumstances, and um, essentially they put a feeding tube into her lung and then uh, denied it but uh, there were all sorts of other things went on. And I'm very aware of this business of um, uh, elderly old people where they've been denied of fluids in particular and how distressing it is after that starts to take effect. So I know it's been very hard on you to tell us what, what you've described. Um, but and because I just... I've got no family members, I only have my disabled son. It was just I'm nobody to lean on. Yes. Talk about it at all. And I did actually ask them for a feeding tube, and they said we don't use those anymore. Y- yes. That's what they told me. And and as as I did just now with with Barbara, what happened subsequently when your mother died? Did you try and did you try and do something about her death? What did you do? Uh, yeah, well, I was so confused. I didn't know anything about this pathway. So I told three different people the story, and they said, and they said, oh, um, that doesn't sound right. It, 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 it's a bit sure. And I said, yeah, I've told you the full And they said, no, there's something not right there. I think it needs investigating. So when the third person told me, um, that's when I, I decided to, uh, I think I went to Powell's, because I went to Citizens Advice, they said go to Powell's, so I thought, well, I'll go to them. Uh, they, they seemed to be laughing at me, really, they were a waste of time. So to cut a long story short, I decided I'd uh, go to the police. I thought this is a criminal investigation, obviously. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have done this pathway without my knowledge. And I couldn't understand why people would agree with this pathway anyway, because it just it shouldn't, this should never have been... I mean, I don't know why anybody thinks dehydrating people to death is a good thing. I never, can't get that out of my head. How everybody in the country is not shouting out about this. So some daft people just seem to think it's great. Well, if these people think it's great, why don't they self sign up for it themselves then? They think it's so good. So I went to the police. The police investigated it. They took all my notes away. 
and then they had what they call open meetings, but I wasn't invited to any of these open meetings. Poor Quality Commission and all these other companies were there. Never invited me, and then when I asked why, they said, well, you're a professional person, that's why. And I wasn't told who was at the meeting, because a lot of people didn't want to give the names out. I asked could they have a recording of the meeting, and they said no, there was no recording. They got a, um, I got the medical, we got a medical report wrote, but it was on what the police had wrote, you see. So the police had got, they said it was an independent expert to do this medical report. But I couldn't even see that in full because they put my medical report, what the police had done, with somebody else's had died as well. And this person that died, it, it, it was at the same hospital around about near off the same time as my mum died. They had the, more or less the exact same story as me, that this doctor had marched them into the office and told the family to stop trying to give their mother water and all this. So the same doctor was involved. And we later found out that that doctor went living in New Zealand. So maybe they were frightened in case he had to go to court or not. I mean, it was later found out he was in New Zealand, and I think that's where he still is. Police said, ended up saying with this medical expert that the mum had an excellent care, apparently. So the policewoman came to me house, you know, and I said, well, if my mum had excellent care, I said, I hope your mum has the excellent care, then that my mum had in hospital, she gets ill. So I went to bed then, because I was after with the police, I went to the police complaints. And then they came back, everything was done fine and there were no problems. The police apparently had done a great job. Well, good for them. That's all I can say. Now I don't trust the police, I don't trust police complaints. I don't trust NHS, I don't trust anything. I even went to Parliament and stood up in Parliament in a meeting and uh, told the people there what had happened which I'm quite proud of myself because I've never actually stood up and, and said anything like that before in a public place. But that's why it's brought me out of the shell a lot. It's obviously and, something and good to come out of it. And I just thought my story and Barbara's and Karen's can wake people up a bit as what actually goes on. There are some really bad horror stories and they need to be gone out there. People need to know what is going on. And it's not good. And I, I think at the moment it's probably even worse because not long like autopsies or anything when people die now. So God knows what it's like at the moment, I dread to think. Well, you, I think you're quite right, Angela, because at the moment we have had some reports in the press, not many, but we've had some um, talking about large numbers of elderly people dying in the care homes as a result of the policy to put people some of them known to be um, carriers of COVID-19, uh, they've been placed in the care and nursing homes. So the Daily Mirror was one of the papers that reported we're talking thousands of unnecessary deaths. So this is a very big subject, but I think you're absolutely right. It is particularly bad at the moment. I just want to say, say to you that um, you said you blame yourself um, I'd like to say to you, you you should try not to blame yourself because we all begin these situations trusting the establishment and trusting the people. And, of course, it's only after the things have happened that you can actually understand 
what was really taking place at the time. So I'm yeah. going to say very gently that um, to end up by speaking out in Parliament on, on your mum's behalf, that's really quite something. But don't don't blame yourself um, because yeah, these thanks. these things trap us in them. And I know it very, very well. Um, Angela, yeah. you you spoke out. And am I right in thinking that as a result of you doing that, um, you you then came into contact with Karen, or is there another reason that uh, you... Yeah, Karen saw my story in the local paper and in the Daily Mail, and then she contacted the paper and asked for my number, or asked for phone her, and I phoned her up, and we've been friends ever since. Right. Well, that, uh, I'm going to say to you straight away, there you are, that you spoke out, and immediately it produced an effect. And I, I, Yeah. Yeah, so... Well, well done for that. Um, that gives us a nice opportunity to to bring Karen in. Uh, have we yeah. still have we still got you, Karen? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, um, Karen. Hi, thank my name's Karen Masters. Uh, my mum, Margaret Eskus, passed away on the twenty fifth of November, twenty fourteen. Oliver, uh, just an absolute nightmare. Uh, on the twenty eighth of October. By GP referral, she was admitted to an infirmary for a five-day course of antibiotics for a pressure sore on the buttock. On the 31st of October, we was taken into a room, me, myself, me, myself, me, my brothers, my son, and my dad, who had dementia at the time. Uh, we were took into a room by a Dr. Hashish. An unknown to us was a palliative kernel there. We sat down to have a discussion with Dr. Hashish, and he said that uh, mum had been for a CT scan that day, and they'd found a pelvic mass, and that with mum's heart not being too good, because my mum had had heart problems for 15 years, but it was always managed with it was always managed with tablets. He was almost 70 years old. Uh, he said that mum was going downhill and that he wanted a DNA putting on the dad. He wasn't doing... He wasn't... He wanted a DNA one on me. I refused. My brothers refused. And he just said he was doing it anyway. And with that, the nurse turned around to Dr. Ashish and said, is, is Margaret now for palliative care? Which he replied, yes, this was a Friday. On the Sunday, we was all there, and the gynecologist consultant came while we was all on the ward. Mum at this time was sat up in bed and talking and laughing. Uh, on the Sunday, uh, the gynecologist came, me and my buzz were there, and she said, I've just reviewed the CT scan, the pelvic mass is a cyst from a district and my mum had had 40 years previous. So there was nothing to worry about. So we were like euphoric, absolutely made up. Then then she, she was picking up, eating, everything, fine, everything was going great. On the 5th of November, on the Wednesday, uh, on the Thursday, as I walked into the ward with my son, uh, Dr. Maddy, had requested to see me. Me and my son was took into a room because my brothers couldn't get there. 
and uh, along with Dr. Madden was a Macmillan nurse. I went into the room with Dr. Madden and I was told that mum had three types of cancer, a mass in the pelvis, which had already been discussed, a mass in the cancer of the throat, and can, hang on, cancer of the pelvis, cancer of the throat. Oh, I can't think what the other cancer was. The three types of cancer, Angela was the three types of cancer. Throat, pelvis, oh, lungs, sorry, lungs. And uh, the t and we were like, just looking at him, shocked. And he said, I'm afraid to tell you, she's less than 12 weeks to live. And by this time, my mouth was on the floor. And I said, this, it doesn't make sense, this. I said, what do you mean she's got cancer? He said, what I said, he said. He said, she's got cancer in three places. He said, I think we should go along now and tell your mum. I said, tell my mum what? He said that she's got three types of cancer and she's terminally ill and she's less than 12 weeks to live. I said, well, I'm rather you didn't do that. I said, because my mum is terrified of dying. I said, so please, please do not tell my mum something like that. He said, unfortunately, she needs to be told. So we proceeded along to the ward, where in no uncertain terms, he told my mum that she had three types of cancer. She had less than 12 weeks to live. And all he could do was make her comfortable. And he would try and get her home. That was on the 5th of November. Leading up to that, she was fine. The Macmillan nurses, Macmillan nurse, the specialist at the hospital, arranged to have a bed delivered to, to her home so we could nurse Mama's home in the final days. The bed was delivered. On the 19th of November, when we proceeded to go into the ward to visit Mum, uh, she had been moved to a side room, to which I questioned, because my Mum didn't like being on her own. I said, can you tell me why my Mum's been moved to a side room? Well, she unexpectedly developed diarrhoea this morning. So we don't know whether it's the antibiotics or she's got a bug. So we have to put her in there. But within 24 hours, if the diarrhea is cleaned up, she can come back on the ward. I said, well, please make sure, I said, because my mum doesn't like being on her own. But as a family, we made sure that visiting was covered from 10 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night, all the way through. In the time mum went in that room on the 19th, she was never offered a drink. Or a meal. Nothing. On the 20th, when we, went, when we went into the hospital, into the room, my mum was really, really drowsy, and they put her on morphine. And she should never have been put on morphine because she had heart problems. And they was injecting her with morphine because they said she was in pain. But the pain relief she was on was quite substantial enough she didn't need any more. So I started to question it which I was told that mum was on end-of-life care and not to get involved. So they put us, I had a meeting with a social worker and they, they put a care plan together for mum to come home and be nursed at all. On the 21st of November, which was the Friday, 
unknown to me, there'd been a meeting behind our backs, which I'll explain later. There'd been a meeting took place behind our backs, which we didn't know anything about. As we was in the room, Mum, this was the final time Mum spoke. And the word she said, and I didn't believe her, but I should have done, because I thought it was the drugs what were talking. She said, Karen, there's three of them, and you don't know what they're doing to me. Then were the last words my mum uttered. On the 24th of November, I had a conversation with the consultant who rang me when I was at home to say that mum could be discharged the day after on the Tuesday and come home to us. So he was like happy that mum was coming home. The following morning, we always arrived at the hospital for half past ten, never know later. We're in, we was in my home, which is ten minutes from the hospital. And we, I received a phone call that mum had deteriorated. She was deteriorating. So me, my brothers, my dad, my son, all raced up to Wigan Infirmary. I received a phone call that mum was deteriorating at 11 minutes past 10. We arrived on the car park at 21 minutes past 10. Ran along the ward to be greeted by a nurse to say she died 10 minutes previous. We was absolutely hysterical. But they said they'd washed and cleaned mum and she was dressed. I walked into that room to see my mum, her face was disfigured, her mouth was wide open, dry. She still had the catheter, a catheter bag attached to her. This is a lady what's called being cleaned. But yet she was stone cold. We stayed there for an hour and a half. We all came home devastated. And the same afternoon, I received a phone call from the hospital morgue to say that mum needs a post-mortem. I said, what for? Because the doctor's not willing to sign it off. He wants a post-mortem. So things were put in motion. We tried to get the funeral arranged. In the meantime, my mum was transferred, was having a post-mortem. And I, I was dealing with a lovely lady from the coroner's office, Nora. She was fantastic. Nora got back. We arranged my mum's funeral for the week after. I got a phone call off Nora from the coroner's office to say that mum's death was malnutrition and bronchial left pneumonia. That was what was going on the death certificate. Only then did I question, I said, what are you talking about? Pneumonia. The man on my cancer three places. And she said, hold on a minute here, Karen. She said, I think we're getting wires crossed here. She said, you're trying to tell me that you want my cancer? I said, yeah, three places. And my mum was dying of cancer. 
I said, not pneumonia. I said, they never talk, mention pneumonia. She said, right. She said, have you got access to a computer? I said, yes. She said, can you email all this over to me? She said, and I'll put this back in front of the pathologist, which we proceeded to do when we did that. She rang me back and said it would be the day after before she could get back to me. And I received a phone call on the Wednesday where the lady replied, are you sitting down, Callum? And I said, no. She said, well, can you sit down? So I sat down and she said, I'm sorry to tell you, but there's no traces of cancer in your mum's body at all. Well, devastation was not what we... We could not understand all this. So we was told that mum's death would have to go to inquest. So my brother had to go along to the morgue with an infirmary and do identification in front of a police officer. Which he did, he didn't want me to do it, so he went ahead and did it. The inquest was opened on the following Thursday morning and it was shut straight away and it was due to be up for the following May. On the Friday, I received a phone call at 10 past 7 at night from Wigan, from Wigan CID. And it was inquiring that Mum's death, they'd had a report that Mum's death had been sudden and suspicious. So I had a phone call on the Friday night to answer all the questions to the CID and everything. We had to cancel the funeral, the first funeral, and rearrange it for the week after. Then we, I had to, we have to, we had to give full statements to the police of what actually had gone on and things like that. Uh, we went to inquest the following May, and Maddie was put, Doctor Maddie was put on the stand only to discover on the 21st of November when they had the best interest meeting. They found, that, found out that mum didn't have cancer, they knew. The coroner then proceeded to ask why, the, why we weren't informed as a family that mum hadn't got cancer. And we were told it was irrelevant. I tried, to ask, I tried to ask questions in the inquest court. I was cut down. Uh, they just shot me down. They wouldn't let me ask this. They wouldn't let me ask that. There was a lot of questions unanswered. My mum went into Wigan Infirmary weighing 14 and a half stone. She was in a total of 28 days. She died weighing seven. And that is, that's the story. Uh, Karen, um, well, it's difficult for me to know what to say, except it's, um, it's a very sad story, for, and particularly following the two others that we've heard. Just to, mm. just to ask you, did you, do, did you try anything after the, the inquest yeah, I, was over? Well, what it was, when we were in hospital in the November... Uh, I applied for mum's medical records then, which turned out to be a good thing, what I did. 
I applied for mum's medical records before she died. Obviously, I received the record, the medical records after she died. After the inquest, I wrote a letter to uh, Chief Inspector Michael Frazier at Wigan Police. I then received a letter back saying I asked him for a criminal investigation and he said he was quite happy to do that. So a criminal investigation started. But in the meantime, while all this was happening, six more cases had come forward from Wigan Infirmary from the same ward, the same doctor. So obviously all this was flowed into the act along with my mum's case. But what the Macmillan nurse who was at the hospital denied at the denied at the coroner's court ever speaking to us. She didn't know us, she'd never seen us before. But luckily at home, I had the card that she'd given me. And I also had the printout from Wigan Council, which I managed to get of where she ordered the bed. Michael Frazier picked up on this and got back in touch with Wigan Infirmary on what he'd found. And suddenly, this misremembered. She didn't know us, and she had spoken to us. Then, he picked up why we weren't informed that mum hadn't got cancer. And basically, he came back with recommendations and that they should fill fluid balance sheet charts improperly. An investigation closed. So, Karen, what what was the what was the final decision of the? The final cause of death was natural causes. Right. And I also received a letter of of Umish Pabu, a sorry letter. While the investigation was going on, a sorry letter to say how sorry it was that we were told mum had cancer and she didn't have it and he was so, so sorry and lessons had been learned. Well, that isn't much good to me when my mother's in the ground. Uh, my mother was unlawfully killed for something she didn't have. So I proceeded to go along to the coroner's because I'm still trying to get uh, a weight of when we died. We're trying to get the weight through what, what, uh, what she did weigh when she died. And unfortunately, they don't, they don't weigh them now when they die. So they don't know where this information is. Because they know she was malnourished and they won't release it. A lot has gone on. A hell of a lot has gone on. And it's just been lies upon lies upon lies. They've almost given morphine, which I have got, on the fluid balance sheets. And at four, I'm 51 now. And at 49, I got what was called broken heart syndrome. I had to have a triple heart bypass through all the stress what I've been through. And I also have been diagnosed with PTSD to the nightmare I've had. 
and I'm just in the process now of looking after the terminally ill husband at the minute, and I've got very bad, very bad, very bad uh, trouble with regarding my husband at the minute trying to get treatment, and my life's just upside down. To be honest with you. Yeah. Karen, thank you very much for 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 doing that. I I do appreciate how stressful it is to go through these things because it it automatically means that you're reliving events and that's very difficult um but it's also uh important to talk it through because it's only when people like the three of you um speak out that other people can actually hear what is happening what's really happening inside the nhs and they can we begin actually to... stopped uh, an interview going out with granada reports the hospital told granada reports not to come along and do the interview with them right so that, so what a, a local who was going to do the interview with you local radio i, I had uh, i was in the daily mail twice uh in the local papers and and same as Angela's, and that's what I've had. But Tim Scott ran me from Granada Reports because he seen the article in the Daily Mail, right. and he was told in certain terms not to come along and do the interview with me. So they were essentially the press were warned off. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Right. And just just to end um, this s section, Karen. You you saw or you read Angela's story in the local press, is that right? I did, yes. And, and I contacted the paper um, and asked for Angela's number and the rest is history, so we said. OK, <laughs> well, that, that's good. You, you've made a friend out of it, out of tragic I'm circumstances. Well, when you read Angela's story, what was it that hit you? You read that and you were obviously... Um, it was the dehydration. Our mum was left without food and water. And now they called Angela a liar. Right. And I knew then. I knew. Um, I said there's something not right here. These two, these stories match up and it's not right. Okay. All right, Karen, thank you very much for that. Uh, Angela, are thank you... you. S thank you. Angela, are you still there? Angela. Yeah. Yes. Can I can I just ask you when when you first met with Karen and she told you the story what what was it about her story that you you picked up on? Um, well, it was, I just more stories which I've heard of other people as well about this pathway and how they just leave people without water and um, it's just like they're just discarded and I, I was just in shock because I think so. Started looking into it, and I read loads and more other articles similar to mine and Karen's. And I got talking with a lot of people on social media, and I used to meet up with groups of people. And virtually, it was the same thing. They just used to give up, say, "Oh, we can't do anything for them there," and sort of stop food and water as if it, as if it was a normal thing to do. Yeah. So I mean, the... how does that help anybody? Just say, "Oh, I'll just leave them and starve them to death." and not give them any fluids. I, I don't know why that is making someone comfortable because it's, um, it causes hallucinations, pain, extreme thirst. It's a horrible way to die, that, that being deprived of water. And I think that's what upsets me the most, really. 
just thinking that she's died without walking that needed to that. But it's obviously a paradoxy done to speed up the death process. Maybe, but people are naturally dying. It, 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 it um, ends the life, doesn't it? But the, the NHS say it's making people comfortable. That's what they call it. They yes. call it duty of care and making comfort care. And when people see words like that and the doctors and nurses saying it, they think it's a good thing. Um, Angela, I, I, uh, I have my own memories coming back at this because I, I witnessed my own mother-in-law very dehydrated until the family prompted her to be put on, on a drip and at least some hydration given, uh, which of course did produce a beneficial effect. Um, but we were, we were constantly cold that she couldn't have liquids because she didn't have a swallowing reflux uh, which yeah. was which was actually true um, but looking back I can say that I saw a number of things that didn't seem to be right and of course yeah. one of the one of the things was that there was there didn't seem to be any urgency to um, ensure that she was fully hydrated and I can remember yeah. her saying to me on one occasion I'm just so desperate for a drink or a cup of tea. But she was never allowed that. So I'm just going to add that little piece because I understand from personal experience at least some of the things that you're saying. Thank you, um, thank you, Angela. I just want to bring Barbara back in. Um, Barbara, I just want to how say thank you for giving me the opportunity for speaking well, and uh, letting Mum's story be heard. Really, thank you very much. Well, that that's a pleasure. But um, I'm sure we're going to be able to speak some more. So don't don't think that um, th this interview's the end of it. I think there's there's a lot more to cover. If you if you're right. happy to do that. Yeah, I am, oh, yeah. Okay. So, Barbara, can I just ask, how did you meet these other two ladies? Through Mark, through Mark Jones. He told me about their experiences, and, of course, predictably, I was as horrified. I was shocked but not surprised. And um, when he said about your, you know, you've expressed an interest, how, how nice it would be for us to get together and compare notes. See, John's death was very quick because, as I say, I mean, they did tell us, you know, that um, they were leaving him to slip away naturally, but they didn't actually say when. He didn't at any point say that his death was imminent. Um, but you know, I wonder, if, on, the, on reflection, could we not have taken him home that night? But one of the abiding problems I'm left with is, um, that won't leave me in peace, is that that poor man who so badly wanted to live who loved his home and his family and his friends and his garden and his apple turnovers and his little drop of antifreeze now and again, although he shouldn't have had it, and his old reruns of Midsummer Murders and Miss Marples. He was a happy man. That sounds a bit paradoxical considering his health problems, but he was happy. We could have taken him home that night and he would have died in his own home. He died because he was given an injection. And the very fact that they won't disclose the, um, the, the records of it, we don't even know who the name of the woman. The, um, we went to the coroner because apparently there ought to have been a coroner's inquest and there wasn't. Um, there was no uh, autopsy, there should have been an autopsy. And can I just, before I forget, this is terribly important, it's becoming increasingly rare now for toxicology tests to be undertaken during the autopsy process. 
And very often the indication is that the toxicology would indicate the drugs that the decedent was given immediately prior to his or her death. They're not doing toxicology tests anymore. Um, but I think the, the, uh, we went to the coroner, and Mark knows all about this guy, and he retired early. And his um, boss, the head coroner for Cheshire, um, I think the hospital weren't as scrupulously truthful with the head coroner as perhaps they ought to have been. Um, but we know that there ought to have been an autopsy, and dear kind Dr. Uh, Alan Fletcher, who's a medical examiner based in Sheffield, I have some correspondence from him, and Dr. Fletcher stands by what he says. He says that there ought to have been an autopsy and that we should have taken the coroner in Cheshire to judicial review because he's acted unlawfully. We also went to the police. Uh, when I had the letter informing me that John had been given morphine, I immediately telephoned the coroner's officer. I spoke to a lady called Yvonne Williams, and she said, this is a criminal matter. You need to go to Cheshire CID. We were interviewed within a short time by two officers from Cheshire CID, and one of them later was to tell me that they were looking at involuntary manslaughter and that had John's body not been cremated, they would have applied for an exhumation order. Um, when we, we didn't hear anything from DC Black for a little while, and when I rang up, we were told she'd gone on sick leave. Uh, Detective Chief Inspector Mike Evans got very, very upset with me when I told, uh, I told him that I'd been informed by Christine Hurst a coroner's officer from Cheshire, that she remembered D.C. Black attending the coroner's office because D.C. Black is extremely concerned at the failure to hold an inquest into John's death. D.C. Evans got very upset about that. But um, we later found, Mark knows all this story, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Brian, the last time we spoke, but we have two DNR CPR forms, neither of which were consulted, we were consulted over. But the second one didn't emerge until four years after John's death. And curiously, in one of his letters to me, DCI Mike Evans from Cheshire CID identified only one um, CNR form in the file. And yet there were two. The other one presumably has been sent from the trust to my solicitors here in Frodsham. And when I tried to get any sense out of the solicitors as to how this DNR form had emerged, they were not able to tell me. They weren't very communicative on the subject. But one of the partners from the solicitors said that there were numerous DNR forms throughout John's medical records, and I wondered if I could impose upon him to direct me to precisely where I could find all these numerous DNR forms, because it was only the one. So there you go. Make of it what you will. I don't like to use emotive terminology, but I see conspiracy here. Also, can I just nip in there a minute, Barbara? Yes, love. Feel free. I had a toxicology done. I did a toxicology test uh, when mum had a post-mortem. Yeah. And it came back that mum had been given morphine just before her death. And another vital thing what I've missed, what I've missed out is when I applied for mum's medical record in the November, when Michael Frazier took the case off from Wigan CID the following May, he applied for his own records. Now, my records and Michael Frazier's records don't, don't add up. They don't say the same things. He has got a totally different set of medical records to what I've got. Can, can I just tell you that, um, did you know that very often they will create an alternative narrative? They I've will... got the proper ones. Michael Frazier's got the lies. 
but they, they, they will fabricate and falsify uh, medical records. And, and I, yeah. I, as I said to you earlier, the issue about the General Medical Council, what, what they actually base their findings on in respect of the claim that John was deeply unconscious, number three on the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is right next door to death, and that he had an ET tube in his throat. Um, where they've got that from, I just do not know. Yeah, yeah, they've got totally different records. Because Mr. Frazier wants me to hand my files over to him why he scrutinises them. And I said, no, I'm not handing them over. And he's well, not asked that. The police shut down my investigation into John's death because he said there was no toxicology. But because of all the Gosport, the media was saturated by reports about the Gosport scandal. Yeah. And um, it was a barrister for the Crown Prosecution Service, Mr. Jeffrey Lippman. And mm. Mr. Lippman wrote to me and he said, heard about my case and he said um, they didn't need toxicology. The police, did not, the police should not have shut down the investigation. Mm on the ground of no toxicology because they didn't actually need it. And then, mm. point, there's police investigations being shut down all over the country, which is showing this is going on very much by design, and it's quite shocking that no-one's doing anything about it. Mm. Yeah. No. OK. Um, Mark, just just hold hold on two seconds because I was, I was just about to bring you in there, but... Um, just, just hold, hold fire a minute. I, can, can I say to um, Barbara, Karen, and Angela, thank, thank you very much for for doing that section because I'm going to say you, you all did brilliantly. Um, I've been a bit hard by sort of um, pushing that hour at you, but um, you, you've given very good and concise summaries, and um, I, I know it's difficult for you to do it. So that bit was absolutely excellent and just that little bit of discussion between yourselves afterwards has also been very good um i i've been making some notes and um what what um has come out now very clearly is that there are a number of things that you've you've seen happening i'm just just gonna say what those are i've picked up that that people are not being weighed when they died. I didn't know that. <coughs> Excuse me, croaking a bit. <coughs> I didn't know that, and I think it's very significant. The dehydration one, I did know know about, but of course you're reinforcing that this is being used um, as a way of hastening death, and you're also pointing out quite rightly that this is a very unpleasant um, way to hasten somebody's end uh, because ultimately they suffer as a result of it uh, you've mentioned that um, toxicology is not always performed and certainly that's been reported to me from um, other cases and you've you've also said what the significance is of course that the police can use that as an excuse that they can't properly investigate if there's no toxicology report and the other one is that um, that you're being called liars so the family are really um, pushed to one side the family um, don't really have a place in proceedings that's all left down to the professionals so there's a number of case a number of 
different factors that have come to the surface from the three individual stories, and I think this is this is excellent. My name is Dr. Mark James. I did my PhD at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. In 2010, I was going to be made a fellow at Chelsea Westminster Hospital in children's surgery. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not. I'm just a medical researcher. I just look at data. I analyse things. I try and make things. I've won awards for helping children. Um, I was totally unaware of all this stuff going on with the elderly. And what I saw of my mum started in 2010. And from that, I saw my mum die in 2015, but I claimed she was murdered. What happened was, in 2015, she was murdered. It took a month to kill her. Um, they... Chester Council put an injunction on her story, which was very strange, which cost a fortune. Um, Chester Council lied about me. I found the whole system trying to destroy and shut me up. And when I started talking to other doctors and other people who had had similar issues, they knew these things were occurring and they didn't want to bring it up either because he was going to destroy their careers, stop them pensions. So... They wouldn't do it. And then when I spoke to lawyers, there were some good lawyers who realized it was going on, and there were some other lawyers deliberately sabotaging and making sure cases didn't get to court or weren't brought to um, awareness that this problem was widespread. The reason why these cases we've got here are important is they're all occurring in Cheshire. They're all next to each other. They all happened in 2014. The seeds of what caused them happened a lot earlier. There was a culture which ranges from the General Medical Council to the CQC to the um, Sisters Regulatory Authority. So you've got all the regulatory bodies not doing their jobs and, in fact, deliberately damaging and covering up the scale of the problem. Now, when it look at it from a bigger scope, the patterns that occur with all these cases all over the country is it's not one person that puts the people into a vulnerable position. It is a team. There's always two people helping the elderly person become more vulnerable. As I spoke to doctors, they called it accelerated deterioration. It was designed to deliberately take good, healthy people and make them look like they had problems. They would make out they didn't have mental capacity. They would ignore the fact that the dementia was caused by a urinary tract infection. And everywhere you turned, people were ignoring the truth and they were working out ways to financially gain by it all. Therefore, a culture developed where all of this was making money, which nobody wanted to upset. And if they did upset, you'd have consequences to all the other people in the past who had also got away with it. So this has gone on for a long, long time. Gosport Hospital, Midshires, all these hospitals, they're common, but they're not talked about. And the thanks to modern media and the thanks that Facebook and Twitter join people together, we have managed to bring these people together. And in the past, they would have never known each other, never realized. They would have all thought that the, the, the NHS and other organizations are wonderful, and some of them are, but definitely a cancer growing in them all. Mark, your your own mother died as a result of um, 
dehydration and and a cocktail of drugs. Is that correct? Yes. What was shocking was um, to go through my mum's history just quickly. Um, pre twenty ten, I was building a wet room for my mum. Is yep. everyone there? Yes. Yes. yes, yes it's all right. I, I was basically. Um, made a fellow at Chelsea Westminster Hospital, and I was going to do research in London, but I would be looking after my mum in Chester because I could move all my research by the internet. So I could, because all I was doing was studying surgical stuff. So I was in London in 2010, and then I was told my mum had a stroke. I came back to Chester, and I honestly thought my mum had a stroke, but my mum woke up and said she'd been hit by someone. I reassured my mum um, because my sister said nobody had hit her. That that's not been so. And then slowly, my mum kept saying she'd been hit, and then she got hospital-inquired infections, which made no sense because nobody else in the hospital was getting any infections. And as you look at it, in 2018, England was the biggest country in Europe for sepsis, which made no sense. So I, I couldn't understand why my mum was getting the infection. So my mum was then, 2011, put into a nursing home. I wanted to bring her home. I watched the system deliberately trying to prevent her from coming home. My mum tried to learn to walk again. They didn't want her to walk. It was like the whole thing did not want her to recover, and they wanted her to deteriorate. And I would spend time with my mum, and it was quite obvious there were things were not right. She was quite worried about stuff. And in 2013, I took her, as I did, every Sunday to church when I could, and it was quite obvious she didn't have dementia. She was holding conversations. She was obviously um, fearful of something. And then it came out, and I recorded it. My mum said a lawyer had hit her, had changed the will against her wishes, and also tried to force her to sell her home when I wasn't there. And as I researched this, I found this had been done also in um, 2000, before 2010, when I'd been to an American conference. They had picked on my mum. And I investigated after mum's death, and I found these lawyers do this. They pick on elderly who have no extended family to oversee the will, to take the will by force, to create dispute, and then profit from all this disaster. And I couldn't believe this. So... In 2013, I tried to get my mum and this nursing home to see a lawyer to get a statement. My mum had an epileptic fit due to the mismanagement of her medication. I told that an ambulance was going to be arriving to help her. Two hours later, the ambulance hadn't arrived. My mum was still fitting. I called the ambulance. They said no one had ever called them. The ambulance crew arrived. They were shocked that my mum had no care. They checked the nursing home. They hadn't used the medical supplies they got, which could have saved my mum. My mum was in a very bad state. And just as the ambulance crew was about to take my mum out of the nursing home, the uh, manager of the nursing home produced a do not resuscitate. Um, it was rejected because the doctor involved had kept my mum in the nursing home drug, and it made no sense. The doctor was living, well, office practice was across the way from my mum's guest house. The lawyers were just further down the road who have tried to rob her. And then my mum was put into another place in 2014. And it was meant to be the best nursing home on the planet. And it was right next to the Countess of Chester. 
And I went in at night, and there was no staff. I went in at night, and there were people screaming for help. And I said this was going on, and I got banned from going in at night because what I was seeing was a nursing home improperly staffed. And a very good staff person told me what the nursing home was doing was taking patients from the countess, supporting them at night, and at night the business plan was that future nursing homes would run out a program where at night the staff would have the dementia patients fast asleep and they could be used for looking after hospital issues and the nursing homes could be extended into this um, commercial business. Well, I obviously saw this was not possible. And then I went in at a meal time and I saw two head nurses misfeeding an elderly person, which could have caused them to have other problems. And as soon as I raised the concern, I was banned from going in at mealtime. And then they put a doll, it's a provocation of order of liberty, on my mum, based on lies, one of them saying that I had caused trouble in the nursing home, which was impossible because when the police incident had occurred, I was with a lawyer in some other location. So it obviously was a lie. So my mum had a doll's put on her, which trapped her in a nursing home she didn't want to be in. She was dehydrated several times. She went to the countess. The staff there ranged from good to bad. They tried to save her, but she gets being sent back to Peniton, the nursing home. And by then, I realized it was very strange behavior. And what also happened was I was escorted by two social workers to see my mum for one hour, three times a week. So let me explain. I went to the nursing home, which is five minutes away from the hospital. I was walked into the nursing home by two social workers, escorted me to my mum. I was not allowed to take photographs or record my mum begging for help. I was not allowed to bring anyone else in to show these things going on. The two social workers obviously knew what was going on was weird. It was um, so bad I couldn't get over it. And then somewhere after Christmas, they said my mum was going to die, so they put her on a pathway. This made no sense because my mum was quite happy. And then what happened was um, I got to present this hopefully on Russian news. Then as soon as I was going to present it, Chester City Council put a court injunction on my mother's story so it couldn't be heard on the news. And if it had been heard on the news, my mum would be alive now. Also, a professional expert was not allowed to see my mum to prove she didn't have dementia, though other people sneaked in and recorded that my mum clearly was complimentous, clearly knew that she had been hit, clearly knew there was something bad going on. I brought this up to the attention of the police. Um, the police detective turned up. He didn't know I was recording him, so we caught him lying because he didn't say the same thing at my mum's inquest. Then it took a month for my mum to die. And my mum, I would visit her three times a week for one hour, and it was quite obvious she was being removed food and drink. She begged for fluids. The nurse, who I had kept noticing was one of these bad nurses who was trying to cause me, presented my mum with a drink, and my mum pulled her head away and clenched her teeth, which made no sense she was thirsty. I said, Mum, you're thirsty. My mum said she was. She, the nurse offered her the drink. My mum clenched her teeth, turned away. I took the drink off. The nurse tasted it. It tasted foul. 
from further investigation with other people, I found out that what happens is a lot of elderly are given food and drink, which is deliberately foul to make them not want to drink and eat. It's one of the worst secrets of a pile of dark arts which have been done on the elderly all over the country and being protected. So then what happened was um, the Daily Mail were going to be involved, but I've got the letter from the editor saying they couldn't run the story because the council said um, not to talk to me. So everything was done to make sure that my mum died, and then when my mum died, they used morphine for no clinical reason. In other words, they wanted her shut up, and they killed her. Then at my mum's inquest, it was a fiasco. We had two doctors claiming they didn't know each other, but later on I found they both signed a cremation document together. One of those doctors now in 2018 was struck off for not being just a paedophile, but grooming as well. He was notoriously bad and has not gone to jail, and that's another common theme here. So I couldn't get over what happened. Um, the police detective lied at my mum's inquest. The coroner, Reinberg, is appalling. He, he retired, and then this year I asked for my mum's inquest tape, and they can't find it. They can't find it because now we've got further evidence to show more significant crimes done, and it shows my mum's inquest was a fiasco, like everyone else's inquests are. And then coming finally towards the end of it all, in December 2019, I went to court to try and solve my mother's probate case, and it was pointed out that the lawyers who by force took out my mum's will, who were involved with hitting her, said there was a £100,000 care bill, which started in 2015, They'd paid the taxman 3000 for the final payment, so it had all been solved. Because of hard work and because the judge forced the lawyers to do it, who were trying to control my mum's will, we found out it wasn't 100000 It was 10000 It could be even less. So it was a lie. They lied to try and steal money. They didn't also do um, due diligence to find my mum's shares. They were deliberately hidden. I was told my mum had no money. Then suddenly, after a lot of hard work, 60000 suddenly appeared in her account. Still no explanation. Um, a new executor was appointed um, this year. And I asked him, is this fraud? Because everyone else says this fraud occurred by these lawyers. He will not say anything. And now he said he's going to resign because he cannot deal with it. And the worst bit is they said the mum's house was worth, like, peanuts, and now we know it's worth a fortune because of the land it's attached to. And then as I went around the undertakers, I went around the undertakers because I had um, put a long story short, my first landlady was a criminologist, so I knew always to talk to, the la um, talk to the undertakers. All the undertakers knew what was going on. All the undertakers were in fear. None of them came forward the fact that elderly were turning up in the undertakers, kicked to death and then cremated to hide the evidence. Not one of them came forward because it was more than they could deal with. And some of the undertakers now have left England because they couldn't get over the fact that the bodies, which were normally in a presented way where they just looked like they were elderly people that died, had strangely started to look dehydrated. Strangely, you couldn't do a thing with them because they were so shriveled up. And that's what I saw with my mum. My mum became from being very jovial, slightly overweight to a skeleton, and before she died, they made sure they put um, toothpaste on her lips so you couldn't smell 
the battery was decaying and her body was eating itself, which has a unique smell. So they deliberately hid the evidence. They knew what they were doing. That was deliberate murder to hide the evidence. And the reason is because what's been going on is the Liverpool Care Pathway is developed to culture where people do not admit it's running. They're protecting it for the fact it's running. Lawyers have been using it to rob the elderly. They've managed to get away with it. They've controlled the sale of properties. This is all in the land register. This is one of the biggest massive crimes going on. And also, it's now being reported similar crimes are going in America. So it's a common practice to do this, and it needs now to be brought up in Parliament and a proper investigation and safeguards being brought in. Because at the moment, the General Medical Council, they're not doing their job. The CQC was stated as not being fit for purpose. And the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, it was stated they were enabling criminals to do their jobs, to rob the elderly. And that is how bad it is. And as I researched it, all I came across is more and more cases, like you've heard, and what we've got is accelerated deterioration being done to people who should be alive now. And it's a, it's a common practice to now target elderly so they can rob them or target them to damage the family, to cause disputes, to then for the lawyers to financially gain out of it. And it is off the scale. It is getting very dangerous because what the COV-19 has just done is allowed them to get out of jail card and do this large scale, a multi, you know, whole areas of people have been attacked and they've got away with this. It's appalling, yeah? Mark, again, th thank you for that. I, I know that all these stories are very, very difficult to tell because they're so raw and so personal. You have done a huge amount of work to try and alert people in UK to what's happening. Yeah, uh, but just before you go on, let me just say, the thing what happened was, I was in an Undertaker's 2015. I showed the Undertaker a photograph of a dehydrated elderly person, which was in a newspaper, and they said, oh, that's what the bodies look like. And then I said, oh, right. And then they said, oh, those two doctors who you say don't know each other, we see them regular in here. They find the cremation. They get rid of... Um, you know, and then they said this to me, we've seen babies look like that. And I said, pardon? They said, we've seen babies turning up here dehydrated. And I, I know from the incubation unit and all the other stuff, babies should not be dehydrated and turning up. They should die something else before they end up dehydrated. And then what we have in 2015 is the fact that um, a nurse was killing babies, and they say it's only 15. As I went around and spoke to people, I found hundreds of parents who think they're going to court to get resolution, and not one of them will. And what's more disturbing, if you look at the past history, it will not be one nurse killing all these babies. It will be what we find is a group of people acting together. We don't understand why they do it. Could be financial, could be other reasons. But that now we know, and you know because you've spoken to other people, is also happening around the country. And what's strange is you either have elderly deaths or babies' deaths. They switch between the two, and there are a group of people within two-hour-mile radius of places, and they go around, and they set these jobs up. 
They go around sabotaging people's lives. They help kill people who should be alive now. What was really strange about the babies is some of the babies were IVF, so parents really wanted that child. It was their last chance to have a child, and strange enough, the baby died, and now the lawyers will control and be able to um, manipulate the funds left in those trusts. It's all by design. It is a appalling situation going on, which when he went to Parliament, I approached somebody in Parliament about saying he couldn't run fast enough away from me. Chris Matheson, the Cheshire MP, ran away. These people are not doing their jobs. And when it came to my mum's case, we found the police detective who is listed and it's named in 2007 who oversees the elderly is involved in financially gains from my mother's death. This is really dangerous situation to be in because there is nothing going on which makes legal sense. And when I've been to court, I have watched bent judges. That is how bad the situation is. Thank you. Mark, thank you very much for that. You've taken us into some even deeper and darker areas there, which I uh, fully expected you to do because I've spoken to you um, many times before. I'm thinking that for our audience, this this is going to be immensely hard for people to look at, uh, in particular, the NHS, NHS, which is, has been um, praised in uh, recent months for work with COVID-19. And we are recognising that there are many, many good people working within the NHS doing extremely good and professional jobs. Um, but what we are also discovering is that the evidence is now coming to the surface that within the care system as a whole, so not just hospitals, but also nursing and residential homes, um, that proper care is certainly not being given in some cases and worse in others. Barbara, Karen. Hi. <laughs> Angela. Um, can Hiya. have you Have you got any sort of last... Um, points you just like to say to me personally, anything you like to ask or whatever? Well, yeah, I just almost I forgot to tell you. I did find out with the medical records it said my mum had probable dementia, but they told me she'd been assessed with it. I forgot about that. And also, like Mert was mentioning, my mum mentioned somebody hit her in the care room, and it wasn't long after I went to the manager about that. That house seemed to go downhill a lot faster as well. So I think with Mert saying his mum was it, similar things happened with me, my mum was it, and when I raised it, yes. things were going downhill fast. So if they don't like you, you start to complain, I think, in hospital or is, care is, rooms. Is this, All of a sudden, bad things seem to start happening. Is this when your mum was saying that they, they're doing things to me? She said, uh, my mum said they, they were hitting her in the care room. And then I went to the manager and I, I told her what she said. And then they had a meeting and then they said to me, oh, no, your mum was talking rubbish, your mum's got dementia, she doesn't know what she's saying. So it was just brushed under the curb and I said, no, my mum's telling me the truth. They said, oh, no, she's just making it up. So they weren't, they weren't taking her on. She did yeah. say in the hospital, um, the she says, Angela, the poisoning me. I said, what do you mean? So she did, she did mention she was being poisoned. Right. And I have to say, that's a common 
as you listen to lots of people talk about this, these are common things that are said, and nobody understands that there are people who are going out there in teams, they deliberately accelerate the deterioration of individuals. When they're in nursing homes, they put them into three batches. The first batch, they can leave the people to get up, get their own food, clean themselves. The second batch is sort of the midway. The third batch is accelerated deterioration to death. And they design it so the nursing home is always in profit so they can get themselves out of bed because there's always new people they can bring in and claim have got dementia. But when they really start to deteriorate, they make sure they go fast to save themselves money. And but it's been When people that they've got dementia, when really they've just got urine infections. Yes. Oh, yes. they're using drugs what are giving them, uh, making them have hallucinations. Yes. So the mimic, these drugs and the, and the dehydration is mimicking dementia. Yes, and they don't realize there was a nurse who found out that they were elderly people who had urinary tract infections. She started investigating. The whole system tried to destroy her. And she was, uh, you know, that, that's what we've got. We've got a system protecting what is a very nasty criminal network, and it's all financial gain. It's disgusting. Ma mm. Mark, I'll ask you a question. Um, I read a report in one of the newspapers, probably couple of weeks ago that it was being considered or probably more strongly than that you know proposed as a policy that post-covid um, the NHS would actually take over a lot of nursing homes what, what would your reaction be to that I, I, I don't have any qualm about doing that or doing them privately I, I don't have a problem with that. I think the problem is you have members of staff who work in teams who join forces to deliberately kill people and then it gets hushed up and covered up. The problem with the nursing homes, which the 2015 Royal Society Medicine found out, was the elderly people in the nursing home with DIB, dehydrated to such extent they would end up in hospital and then they would die there. But what I observed in my mum's nursing home in 2014-2015 was staff being trained to make people ill. I had people coming from the hospital trying to infect people. I saw what was being done, ready to be done in 2019, well, the COVID-19 trip, to infect elderly to make sure they would die in the nursing home. This, what we've got going on now, which is reported as some strange accident was by deliberate design, and I saw people training them how to get away with it. That's the shocking bit. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say thank you. Well, thank you all for taking the time to talk about this, and yeah, I almost don't we know what to say to you because. Pardon? We all appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, I had the relatively easy bit to do so but I I some ways I don't know or some yeah some ways I don't know what to say to you because you know all of the stories are so heartbreaking and they're so deeply personal I just come back to this business that within with my own mum-in-law we have we eventually uh, forced the first jury inquest the first ever jury inquest into an nhs death 
in this country. And that, that produced a minuscule paragraph in the Telegraph. No other paper carried it. Um, what did we achieve out of it? Well, we achieved a, an apology from the hospital. Um, but the hospital protected the nurse who put the feeding tube into my mum-in-law's uh, lungs and then she got pneumonia and died, but she was also dehydrated as well. And they lied and they covered it up. But the hospital protected that nurse and sometimes late, sometime later we discovered that she'd actually nearly killed another patient. And at that point the hospital um, sacked her or got rid of her but initially she was protected and that was one of the things that, uh, um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was very tough, but I discovered firsthand many of the things that you're talking about. I discovered the hospital lying. I saw the stress and distress caused to my mother-in-law and then in order to get some form of truth out of them, we, we had to force that jury inquest and and I also was able to get certain reports in the paper. But um, that was the point at which really my opinion of the NHS started to change. What is strange is there's lots of reports coming out in America which mirrors what we're saying and in Australia that what's going on here with the elderly, the abuse, the lawyers, everything... It's repeated. It's shocking, yeah? Well, yeah. this is this is ideal, Mark, because this is the sort of area we can go into if we do it again and we could we could even play some of the excerpts where there's been nurses in America and I know in other places yeah. talking about these things. So that that's Well the, the the shocking bit was they think that it's a trillion billion industry of robbing the elderly by lawyers using dementia. Yes. They've actually put a figure on it, which the English system, the English law system, and I said, I'm studying law, I sat down to lawyer, future lawyers, and you know what they said? They didn't say that's shocking. They said, we can get away with this. They were looking at it as a business model. That's what horrifies me. Yeah. And, and that certainly needs to yeah, needs to be discussed and questioned yeah okay all right well i'm going to thank say you. i'm going to say bye-bye thank you very much for agreeing to do this and i'll thank you thank you everyone thank you so much Bye. take care all of you Bye. Brian. Okay. Barbara. Bye. 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 bye bye for now bye, bye. yeah bye. Bye. thank you everyone bye, -bye. Right. thank you everyone